0: halves and, and, and it's two um, two points of focus within the same chapter, but really what Paul is writing this whole letter about, and these two sections are, are actually quite joined in one way, is that Paul is, is um, pleading with them and exhorting them and going before them to um, rectify the damage they're doing to Christian witness by their behavior in the city. And we, last week we looked at um, you know, the fact that they were going to law uh, one against the other um, in petty claims um, uh, areas. And they were going into the marketplace and going to um, unsaved judges in order to rule um, over various issues that were happening in the church. And Paul was really uh, getting stuck into them about that because partly there are divisions in the church and this is leading to these petty jealousies and, and um, arguments and fights. But what really is um, concerning Paul is, is that their whole gamut of behavior is causing um, the witness for Jesus in that city to be, to be severely damaged. And don't forget, in chapter One, um, when Paul first got there, he was quite um, um, discouraged because of the debauchery in the city and the lifestyles in the cities. And um, it, it's one of the, the few passages in the New Testament where it's actually quoted that Paul spoke uh, sorry, Jesus spoke um, personally to Paul. Uh, in a dream just to say to keep on keeping on in that city because Jesus said, I had many people in this place. And, you know, that's a real eye opener um, considering the the lifestyle and and what was going on in Corinth. And uh, so Paul really is, is, has taken to heart the fact that Jesus spoke to him personally about this city and so Paul feels uh, a really deep obligation to um, encourage them and warn them and exhort them and, and and try and get them to lift their their level of of public witness and In every one of these letters that that are in the um, um, New Testament specifically to churches, they are there for our admonition because if Paul is trying to exhort the Corinthians to lift their game and trying to improve um the, the the witness for Jesus in that city the the question is um how are we doing in comparison uh, through our witness and I I must admit I'm getting uh you guys um not only in the fellowship on Sunday but I'm getting other people who watch online who um are just recording the fact and passing it on to me that that they're having opportunities to witness and to be a witness uh, in in these days. And uh, Sue actually was having lunch with two of her workmates today from, from uh, the Jewish home. And, uh, you know, she was going to go down there for about half an hour. She went down to the local shops and she ended up being down there for about an hour and 20 minutes. And the rest of you guys are doing the same kind of thing. So it's it's astonishing for for all of us to stand back and see that I don't think there's been a time in the last couple of decades where people have been so open to at least talking about um, talking about the Bible and world events and what does it mean. And it's absolutely. Um, um, uh, a critical time, I think, for not only the unsaved, but it's uh, an urgent time for the church to get in and, and and do the business and occupy while we're still here. And so I'm going to read the the uh, verses out, and uh, and I want you to um, just. Think about the things that uh, Paul is saying here and then try and relate them back to you know, situations that we're aware of here in the 21st century. And Paul starts off by saying, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality. There's a real sudden change in his emphasis there, just in, in, inside one verse. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord is for the body. Now, God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. And do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them the members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says the two shall become one flesh, but the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body But the immoral man sins against his own body Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Whom you have from God and that you are not your own for you have been bought with a price therefore glorify God in your body and you know that warning and that exhortation to us here in um, in the 21st century in in what we call the Western Hemisphere is a very um, a pertinent warning and a very pertinent um, exhortation for us to just examine the things that we're that we're actually doing. And Paul is actually. Um, looking at their lifestyles and in verse 12, the Corinthians are picking up on the local slogan. Um, there are two slogans in this little passage, all things are lawful for us and food for the stomach and stomach for the food. <clears throat> and one of the things that they have done um, is that when Paul came to Corinth and started witnessing to them with um, Priscilla and Aquila and with uh, Timothy and with Silas, they were preaching to them um, the gospel of Jesus, which means that they have been set free from the condemnation of sin. And that therefore, if they accept and believe in Jesus Christ and they're regenerated and filled with the Holy Spirit, they will be delivered from the kingdom, kingdom of darkness into the um, kingdom of light, into the kingdom of Jesus and the father. And what they seem to have picked up on, on Paul's message is they've listened to the first part, that they have been set free from condemn, condemnation of sin. And Paul has obviously taught them through teaching them the whole counsel of God that, jesus paid for all of their sins when he died on the cross and was buried and rose again and the lifestyle in corinth just led them to import that lifestyle into the church believing that they have freedom to sin without consequences and paul is saying in this passage you are not free to sin you are." You have to be aware that there are serious consequences for people who willfully sin. And that is that you do not lose your salvation, but you will face not only um, consequences in your um, um, physical environment, but you will also um, um, risk losing all the rewards that you had stored up for you in heaven when you go to the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. So, Paul is really trying to sober them up. The problem with these churches is, is that, A, they're carnal, that means they're very worldly, they're very immature, they're relatively new Christians, and they're dealing with a lifestyle that when they leave the church precinct or they leave companionship with other believers, they're going out back into the city of Corinth to that debauched um, environment and you know there was a, um, a temple to Aphrodite up on the um, hill above the city, and there were a thousand prostitutes there, religious prostitutes who would come down to the city at nighttime, and so the temptation was always there to go back into their old lifestyles. But not only that, they, the Greek um, mind had developed over a period of time Certain lifestyles, certain intellectual positions, and the two most prominent ones um, in Corinth at this time was uh, Stoicism and Epicureanism. And Stoicism is um, it is a lifestyle that that certain of the Corinthians followed, which was a um, um, a, a lifestyle chasing virtue that is good behavior and restraint in all things but they were a minority but they were still a very strong minority on the other end of the scale there was epicureanism and that's the very opposite of stoicism and that was the whole philosophy behind epicureanism was they would do anything to avoid pain or displeasure and they would search out every avenue seeking pleasure um, Food uh, and sexual immorality, um, because they felt that they had this um, freedom to the grace of Christ to do this sort of thing, and it's it's um, it's quite um, astounding that they had only taken in half of the message that um, that Paul had given them, and their lifestyle was especially uh, around the Epicurean type of lifestyle. Their lifestyle it comes to a head in chapter 11 in this first letter where they're having um, almost drunken parties around the communion table. And for that, they are bearing the consequences and we'll look at those uh, when we get to chapter 11. But I think we're all all aware of it. And Paul wants to go back and he's emphasizing to these guys, all things may be lawful. You won't lose your salvation, but not all things are profitable. And so he Paul was also warning the Galatian church along these lines. And so on, on Bible show, we've got Galatians 5 verses 13 to 15. And if um, Eric can put them up. Yeah. And so Paul is saying here, you know, all things... Um, Sorry, that's my notes. I've got to get my scriptures here. We are for you brethren This is Paul in chapter 5 verses 13 to 15 speaking to the Galatians along these same lines That they are not as extreme as the Corinthian church for you brethren Have been called to Liberty that is to come out under religious systems that were that were um, imposing um, um, Draconian measures of lifestyle um that you've been called to liberty, liberty, only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. And and that Warning from Paul is so relevant to what the Jewish, uh, sorry, the Corinthian believers were doing to one another, fighting with one another, extolling certain teachers above anyone else, and forming um, factions and schisms within the congregation, and also taking them each other to court and and. Um, um, in chapter five, we saw that there was a young man in the congregation having an illicit relationship with his father's concubine. And uh, in this sense of freedom under Christ, they were proud of their ability to tolerate that and allow it to keep going. And Paul is just um, hammering away at this congregation to get them back on track and get them witnessing faithfully and, and virtuously for Jesus And, you know, when I was writing up all my notes, I just started, I was just doing the, you know, the main outline. And I just started writing and writing and writing because there are parallels with um, Corinth, that what we have um, experienced in the Western Hemisphere for the uh, really since World War II. And one of the things that uh, I really wanted to um, emphasize here is that we, in many ways, has for have fallen to some extent for this this same um, um, trap. And what we what we had in in uh, in the West was a progression from the lifestyles before World War II to what happened after World War II. But I want I wonder before we get and have a look at that. But just to look at the consequences that. The Bible first tells us that illicit behavior, wrong behavior, even on the part of a a believer, is going to bring about serious consequences to the believer. And uh, obviously when you you, you consider these things, the the best example I came up with was King David. And King David, when he um, um, uh, fell into sin with Bathsheba, and so he fell into, into that sin. He was supposed to be out leading his army. And uh, Uriah the Hittite and Jobab and others that had stuck with him for many years were out um, at war with the Israel, Israel's enemies. And, and David was back in his castle. <clears throat> and he was walking around the walls and he looked down and he saw Bathsheba. And she was bathing herself. Well, one thing led to, the, uh, to another, and we know what happened. But what David um, and, and the Corinthians are doing was indulging in behavior driven by you know, um, strong immoral instincts and not even taking into consideration the, the consequences of, of the behavior. And everything, every behavior have, have consequences. And so what I what was looking at was um, proof that David um, was suffering through uh, in many ways, like he lost his reputation with, with uh, some of his closest um, um, companions that had been with him since before he uh, even um, uh, rose to the, the monarchy uh, while he was um, sort of sparring a war with King Saul at the time. But in uh, Psalm 32, verses uh, one to five, we have some verses there that actually explain from David's own position his deep regret at, at, um, at breaking fellowship with Jesus and the Holy Spirit and, and going back into carnal behavior. And David says this in Psalm 32, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven whose sin is covered blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose uh, spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long for my, for day and night, your hand was heavy upon me and my vitality was turned into the drought of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. But David suffered really for the rest of his life because of these consequences, because his family basically fell apart. Absalom started trying to take the throne from him. There was, um, there was uh, serious problems between one of the brothers and Dinah and it all got out of hand. And so there are not only physical um, um, consequences to David in his in his uh, immorality, but also his witness, the failure of his character had massive impacts on, on his family. And it's also recorded in Psalm 38, And Psalm 38, I think it's 1 to um, 11, I think, or 1 to 8. No, 1 to 11. And Psalm says this, as David says this in Psalm 38. O Lord, do not rebuke me in your wrath, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure. For your arrows pierce me deeply, and your hand presses me down. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your anger nor any health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. My wounds are foul and festering because of my foolishness. I am troubled, I am bowed down greatly, I go mourning all the day long. For my loins are full of inflammation and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and severely broken. I groan because of the turmoil of my heart. Lord, all my desire is before you, and my sighing is not hidden from you. My heart pants. My strength fails me. And as for the light of my eyes, it is also gone from me. My loved ones and my friends stand aloof from my plague and my relatives stand afar off. And it's, uh, it, it, it's, a, it's a tragedy. Um, uh, th- there's another passage here. Um, Deliver me from all of my transgressions. Do not make me the reproach of the foolish. I was mute and I did not open my mouth because it was you who did it. Remove your plague from me. I am consumed by the blow of your hand. When with rebukes you correct man for iniquity, you make his beauty melt away like a moth. Surely every man is vapor. Hear my prayer, O Lord, I give ear to my cry. Do not be silent at my tears, for I am a stranger with you, a sojourner as all my fathers were. Remove your gaze from me, that I may regain my strength before I go away and end no more. You know, um, David never really fully recovered from from that massive fall for the rest of his life. And even in his very old age, as he was nearing his death, um, people didn't want to go near him because of his physical condition. And he was cold and he was shivering and he was in extremely poor health. And so his court officials actually had to hire a young lady called Abishag. To just simply lie with David, there was nothing um, going on between them, but just to lie with David and to and to try and impart some warmth to him as he lay in this uh, situation. And, you know, one of the things that um, gets me is that um, when I look over the, the last few decades of, of our lifestyles in the West... Um, it, it, it's absolutely astounding how we went from um, relative correctness before, maybe even World War One or World War Two, um, and and then we unleashed something that happened after World War Two, and we're still bearing the consequences of it now. I mean, my dad, um, my dad was born in 1915, and my mum was born in. 1918 and so that generation the the generation of our parents or the generation even of our grandparents had um, a great many trials to overcome life was uh, difficult it was relatively simple but it was difficult and so my mum and dad would have had to have um, made their way through the Spanish the First World War the Spanish flu uh, the roaring 20s where everything sort of exploded into some sort of um, bubble of uh, craziness. And then they had to suffer the Great Depression. And, I, and that the Great Depression had a massive influence on my dad's um, behavior because um, food was scarce. He was the eldest son in his family. So he had to leave school early and go and find work just to help support the family in the great depression. And um, one of the things I always noticed as a young child that around our dinner table at nighttime, my father always um, required a small pudding after the main course. And it was usually just fruit and custard but it was something that my father treasured because it was something that he never had as a child and as a young man, and it was something that was important to him. Uh, And he also used to get really ratty at me because I used to leave food on my plate at the end of a meal, and my father used to get very uh, angry with me because food was important to him. And uh, so we had these, uh, shall we say, disagreements on, (laughs) Who was going to eat cold vegetables at the at the end of a meal? And and after, and that led all the way up to World War II, so that same generation had to put up with yet another world war. And after that, we had what was called the Baby Boomer explosion. And I can just imagine Daryl smiling away and nodding and all the rest of it. we you know, we're pretty much part of that generation that was born from about 1945 right up to 1960. And um, from there on in, something really uh, massive happened to Western society. Um, We were born into, uh, we baby boomers were born into an era where there was economic growth and expansion and very low inflation. So prices were pretty, Pretty stable year on year on year on, and um, you could actually save money from your wages after World War Two and and buy things um, usually in cash. And so, but from from a, a, a time before World War Two, where things were austere, um, food was valued and and scarce. Um, the Great Depression had devastated many families and given everyone a, a sense of what something was worth. And from the 50s onwards, we began to have a transition away from that. And in, ninth, in the 50s, in the West, we had what we would call rock and roll. And I can remember Elvis Presley and, and you know, the other the groups that started in the mid 50s. And then in the 60s, we transitioned into the hippie period um, and that was sort of drenched in drugs and sexual immorality. And in the 1970s, um, Lord have mercy on us. Uh, We brought in the disco era era with all its um, flamboyant clothing and all the rest of that. And seriously, I listened to to one commentator uh, today and it was really quite funny. Because he must be about the same age as me, because he and his wife got married in the seventies, and he said we were married in a an environment that was heavily influenced by disco, and they got married in clothes that represented that disco period, and he made and so did so my wife and I. We got married in that, and I had a, um, a, a deep red crimson suit with you know bell bottom bottoms on the trousers. Lord, please. Um, and this commentator, a really lovely guy, he was saying, um, we never show our wedding photos to anyone from that time period. He goes, no, 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 no. We would not ever show. We're, we're embarrassed to even think that we were in that, that period. And then the 70s transitioned into the 1980s in the Western Hemisphere, and we got what was called the me generation. And the me generation, it was all about me, myself. It was about my feelings, my happiness, my appearance, my uh, possessions. It all became all too much. It was really the me generation. And that transitioned into the 1990s and by that time, many of us were, you know, in our late 30s, 40s, mid 40s. Uh, and all of a sudden, we started experiencing the physical and emotional consequences of the lifestyle that had gone on since the late 50s and 60s. And like David, a lot of, a lot of people were starting to um, uh, be confronted with um, physical and mental consequences of it and of that of that uh, whole um, generation that that whole lifestyle and one of the things that uh, that really stuck out for me when I became a Christian uh, I, I looked at the the slogan of a very well-known international sportswear uh, company and it, it became It it was almost a banner call for that entire generation, the baby boomer, boomer generation. And the slogan for Nike was, if it feels good, do it. And that means that you don't have any consequences. We were told that we were free to do anything and there would be no comeback and that we would be happy and would be fulfilled and free and adventurous and all the rest of it the reality was sadly totally the different. And, um, and there were mental uh, illnesses coming through, there were physical consequences of that lifestyle. And uh, the other thing that, that I, um, I, I sort of have to admit uh, to some guilt in this area, that we, when we became parents, started to indulge our children and we gave, an out, uh, we gave our children in their teens and in their 20s consumer goods and lifestyles that it, it took our parents a lifetime of working and saving to achieve. So we just handed it to them. And when we handed it to our kids, um, almost for, for, for no effort on their part, these things became of no value to the kids because we gave it to them almost as a, as a birthright. And above all of that, that was, that was the, the worldly transition. But the greatest tragedy of all over that time period was that the church and its membership of that generation started to demand a theology that did not convey, us for our lifestyles and the excesses of the last 40 or 50 years and you know terms like seeker sensitive um, um, churches started popping up where people would go there um, living the consequences of this lifestyle and demanding not to be condemned for having gone down that way and so you know churches were, were starting to go down this path where we were um, not mentioning sin because that would impute guilt, and we would not be um, emphasizing the cross. we would not be emphasizing the atonement of Jesus, We'd not be mentioning the shed blood. And so what we ended up with was um, a bloodless, crossless, Priceless nightmare that spawned a generation of truthless deception, and uh, and we can see the consequences of this now, even in in the in the social upheaval that we're seeing happening around the world at the moment. And here in Corinth, Paul was trying to hold them back from that trajectory. And so we go, we go to the actual verses that we, that, that in these, um, uh, this little passage. And Paul is saying that all things might be lawful for me in verse 12, but not things, all things are profitable. There are going to be consequences and there are consequences. But for the last 50 years, we here in the West have been told there will not be any consequences and we know people have paid for it and everyone else will pay for it. And, and he said, but all things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. So when we depart from the lifestyle that God designed for us as believers, and we give ourselves over to things that we know that are wrong, we, in fact, become a slave to those things. And, and we see our unsaved family and friends in that slavery to the things that they are trying to to deal with. And Paul is saying, I'm capable of doing all of these things, but I refuse to be submitted to them and in in eventuality um, um, mastered by them or enslaved by them. And the other thing was the Corinthian attitude was, was to use this particular slogan that they had. Food is for the stomach and stomach is for the food. And what they were saying to each other, listen, we have these these parts of our body. So what is wrong with filling them up or using them for what they're used for, whether it's within um, Christian ethics or just the way we used to behave? And, And Paul is saying food might be for the stomach and the stomach for food. But eventually there's going to come a time when you will not be on this earth and you will be in heaven and you will have to face the judgment seat of Christ as he as he writes to them in the next letter in chapter five. And so what you are doing and thinking that you have complete freedom is that you are piling up for yourself consequences that you will have to give an answer for in the in the age to come. And, and, and God says that he will do away with everything that is transitory and everything that is um, within the, um, um, the lifestyle of these people and the lifestyle of the unsaved. And then Paul comes and hits you right in the face halfway through that, that verse, that verse 13. And he says, God's going to do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord is for the body. He created this body. Even though we are born of parents, still scientists do not understand the the development of the young child in the mother's womb. Um, The the whole um, cell division process is still a mystery because none of us can explain the origin of information where cells divide and become arms or legs or hair or eyes. We just simply don't understand it. And God seems to be in that process uh, at that time. And, And he says that God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. And so we're going to be raised up into heaven and we're going to have to take with us the consequences of what, we have been doing when we live outside his, um, his, his design for us. And one of the things that um, pastors, modern pastors and modern churches don't want to deal with this next few verses because they don't want to upset people and they don't want to make people feel guilty. But at the end of the day, if you don't um, tell people what God says, then you're going to be held accountable by Jesus as stewards of of this truth, that you held it back and did not pass it on, and so you allow people in churches to continue to think that they are doing nothing wrong when they most manifestly are. And this is the problem with modern Christianity in the West. You know, it's it's a um, it's a sinless judgmentless uh, deception that um, that seriously, I I think it's tragic. And, and Paul is saying here, do you not know in verse 15 that your bodies, these physical bodies that we live in are members of Christ because we are joined with Christ. The moment we believe, um, and, and put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we are indwelt by the holy spirit and the holy spirit within us is also uh, called in scriptures the spirit of christ and the spirit of god the father and so when we um, um have and we're a temple of the holy spirit and we actually hold within us and all of us at this um zoom teaching tonight All of us have the indwelling Holy Spirit. And when the Corinthians were indulging in their lusts and when the the churches of the indulgent West over the last 30, 40, 50 years were ignoring the lifestyle that God wanted us to live, um, we actually imposed that sin and that, that falling on Jesus himself because... We have the spirit within us. And, you know, when, and Paul will say here um, in that 15, shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? And there's that Greek term, may it never be. And, you know, I, it, it, that is a staggering thing to even contemplate. That when we, as Christians, as the body of Christ, fall into sin and transgression, we're actually involving the the Holy Spirit, also called the Spirit of Christ, in Romans eight, uh, nine, and in one Peter uh, 11. Um, that He who dwells within us is part of us when we allow the flesh to overcome the Spirit, and it, it's it's a shocking thing, and in, um and that. That becomes a pastor's responsibility to teach their congregations the enormity of what they do when they fall into these transgressions because it's not just them. You're involving a member of the Godhead in this behavior. And Paul is crying out later on in in, in the epistles, do not quench the spirit. Do not grieve the spirit because He is in you and he is dwelling with you and you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. When we were born again, we were washed clean. And he said that in last week's teaching to these people who used to live this kind of lifestyle. As unbelievers, he said, we've been washed. We've been sanctified. We've even been justified, which is to be declared innocent by God the Father through our faith in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross for us and one of the things that staggers me is that pastors so in so many churches will not teach this or preach this or or tell their congregations this because they don't want them to feel uneasy or embarrassed or or, or edgy or whatever they want uh, backsides on the seats and they want them to come back week after week after week and they've failed in their duty as stewards of the mysteries of christ and and the fact that we are indwelt by a member of the godhead when we place our faith and trust in jesus and it's simply not acceptable for pastors to do that and if you think it's bad enough for a member of the congregation who's fallen into transgression transgression to face Jesus at the Bema Seat and give an account for that. How much more serious is it for pastors who pull back and will not teach their congregations this truth about what God would love them to be and, and has designed them to be? And Peter And, and Paul says in verse 16, or do you not know? Do you not understand Corinthians? Do you not understand Western um, Christians? That the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her. And he uses that um, that phrase from Genesis. He says, for he says, the two shall become one flesh. Um, I've had arguments with unsaved people uh, even in the, the last few years in my workplace where um, they lived this kind of libidinous lifestyle and they would say to me, Stuart, it's just a natural function. And without realizing it, they're using that same phrase that the, the um, Corinthians are using. Food is for the stomach and the stomach is for the food. It's just a biological reality and a biological behavior that has no spiritual or emotional consequences. Well, if you reduce one of the most sacred things that happen between a husband and a wife and just dismiss it as just some kind of biological um, pastime, um, that, that is one of the greatest blasphemies that we can put before the Lord. Um, And even David Hocking um, in in his commentary on this particular passage was saying that, um, you know, medical research has the evidence and the data to say that if a man and a woman follow the, the admonitions of the teaching of the scriptures, that they propose marriage to someone that they are drawn to, attracted to, they're in love with. And they do not engage in premarital sex or fornication, and they marry one another, and they devote one and uh, each other to themselves to each other for the entirety of their life, and they keep the the, the sexual side of that um, of that union within the sanctity of a God-designed marriage. That there is a total impossibility that they will ever suffer disease consequences because of the behaviors of people outside. And, and I have, you know, I'm, I'm not going to get too specific here, but I worked in the funeral industry for two and a half years. And I will tell you quite plainly that there are savage consequences of that kind of lifestyle that lead to deaths that lead to serious illness and eventually death. And it's a tragedy to see people in their 30s, 40s, and 50s cut down in what would be the prime of their life because of the physical consequences of this lifestyle. And Paul is, because of his love for this congregation, he's he's almost begging them to pull themselves back from that and get into a lifestyle that God designed for us. In verse 17, um, it says, but the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him because we become part of the body of Christ. He is the head and we are the body and we should be in, when we are born again, taught by our pastors Exhorted by our pastors, encouraged by our pastors to understand the enormity of that, and therefore to flee, as Paul says, flee from immorality. And and, and he says, if you give yourself over to the Lord, you now belong to the Lord. And on that 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 uh, screen that you've got there, and he's saying. Flee sexual immorality. Run away from it. And you know the 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 first example that someone might think of from the scriptures is Joseph um, when he's in Potiphar's um, household, and Potiphar um, elevated Joseph to the position of steward of his household, and that is a great honor in those ancient um, civilizations to be the steward and the the um, caretaker of the master 's possessions and Potiphar 's wife looked at this young man and had wrong thoughts about him and proposed um, immoral behavior and what did David uh, Joshua do? he just took off out that door and started running so to cover her own guilt she uh, falsely accused him and we know that he ended up in prison for you know roughly twelve years for, for, for not doing anything wrong. But for doing exactly what Paul was calling here, to flee from immorality. And um, uh, it, it's something that, um, you know, pretty much um, uh, it's a sad reality that society, Western society as a whole, and humanity basically as a whole, um, would not, as one commentator, put it when I was researching this message, most of the human beings that he know have fled to war or fled towards immorality, not away from it. And Jesus even makes that point in, in the Sermon on the Mount, in, in, um, in Matthew chapter seven, where he says straight is the way and narrow is the gate that leads to life. And few find it but broad is the path and wide is the gate that leads to destruction and many find it and that's the sad tragedy of the human condition that we um that we find ourselves in a in a tiny minority when we seek to live a lifestyle that is pleasing to god and and leaves us with a clear conscience on a daily basis and so Paul then carries on and and says flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside of the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. And once again, I have seen the consequences of that reality in, in tragic circumstances. And I sometimes wish, Um, I could take some of my workmates from from, uh, the past and and show them the consequences of the lifestyle that they are living because the the whole of our media, the whole of our media for the last 30 or 40 years in the West has taught us not only to seek after that kind of debauched lifestyle, but to teach the young people that there are no consequences coming from it. And as David um, Hocking said um, quite bluntly to the congregation at Costa Mesa, he said, you only need to go down and visit an SDD clinic to know that there are very real consequences from a lifestyle that departs from what God wants and designed for us. And, um, And one of the biggest tragedies, and I'll go back to it, is that for the last 30 or 40 years, pastors have shied away from telling the people that truth. And here Paul is pleading with these Corinthians. In verse 19, he says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Who is in you? Whom you have from God, given to us by God, when we placed our faith and trust in Jesus and that you are not your own. And this has a tremendous resonance with the Corinthian believers, the people in the Corinthian church at this time, because more than half of the Corinthian church were slaves. And so Paul is using their situation in life to emphasize that you are not your own but not that you belong to your slave master in Corinth you now through faith belong to your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ because he paid the price for your sin and he set you free so he said you are not your own and he finishes off with this thing for you have been bought with a price. And that would almost stab one of the a, a, a Corinthian believer um, in the church, because for more than half of the congregation, they would have stood in a slave market and Corinthian men would have been walking up and down the slave market and looking at these poor human beings up on a platform available for purchase. And this statement by Paul here in verse 20, for you have been brought with a price and a Corinthian believer would say, yes, I know. I know the price that my master paid for me, but through their lifestyle, They're just completely oblivious to the price that Jesus paid for them. And Paul is emphasizing this, that you have been brought with a price, a price that we could never have paid. Jesus, God, son of God, had to die on the cross shed his own blood as an acceptable sacrifice to his father in heaven, that whomsoever would believe in him would be set free from the kingdom of darkness, from the penalty of sin, receive the free gift from God of eternal life through faith in Jesus. And that was paid for at a price that we could never, ever, ever Save or or trade with or, or or it's just impossible. And therefore, if you've been bought with, bought with this price, Paul's last ex- exhortation in this in this verse is therefore glorify God in your body. Glorify God in your body. Do not glorify your body. With your lifestyle. And Paul is saying. Please please please. Glorify God. Your heavenly father. Who has raised you up. From. The miry clay. When you were dead. In your trespasses and sins. And he has raised you up. And seated you in heavenly places. In Christ Jesus. Your Lord. And seated him with, he seated you with him and with Jesus in heaven. So you belong to God and you've been bought with a price. And you are a temple. You're a brick in the building called the the body of Christ, the temple of God. And the Holy Spirit dwells in us. And brothers and sisters, this, when I was putting this together, it was such a powerful reminder uh, for me that I have been bought with a price, and that I have an obligation to do my best to live a lifestyle that, that God designed for me for my well being. And and uh, it's my this is the message from God to us tonight that that we belong to Him. And he loves us with a love that just cannot be fully fathomed. And therefore, our obligation is to glorify him through our thoughts and our minds, our words, our deeds, and our lifestyle. And um, as we come together at Calvary Chapel, Perth, and we fellowship together, and we thoroughly enjoy the the love that we have between um, one another. And that helps us and encourages us when we go out again into the world that we carry that sense of joy and fellowship and and, uh, a sense of obligation to God to glorify him in our lifestyle and our witness. And this is what Paul has been crying out for these Corinthians to do in these first six chapters. So Father, we come before you this evening. And I just thank you from the bottom of my heart that in requiring of me to study these simple few verses, there is such a profound message here for us in the 21st century to examine ourselves, to examine our environment, to examine our society, and to be salt and light in this, this um place that God has put us in salt to preserve the gospel, the truth of the uh, scriptures and light to be the opposite of the world and to draw people through our witness and through our uh, um, um, propagation of the gospel to bring people into God's kingdom, to allow the Holy Spirit to enter into them and, and, and renew them and wash them and make them clean. So, Father, I just pray that this message would go out through the mouths of the people who have heard it and to be shared in families and workplaces, which suited today at lunchtime. It was wonderful but but all of us are doing that. I see on the whatsapp that that even Jill uh, in England has been doing that, and so we are really um, um, Honouring God by our witness for him in these last days. And Father, we just now thank you for this opportunity to come together. I thank you for the technology. And I praise you from the bottom of my heart that you have brought this passage before us this evening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.